I've certainly had to call on a whole range of people through this period and always people are there aren't they they answer the call and you know I just kind of always look over my shoulder and just feel the support behind me which is just honestly you can't put put a price on that. Welcome back to We Built This City, Greater Manchester Mayor Andy Burnham. Andy has been the front man for the city as he's navigated us through what's been an extraordinary 18 months. I last spoke to Andy on the podcast in May last year and since then he's been the voice of Manchester as he battled with Westminster over lockdown and tier restriction and won another mayoral election. You'll hear him reflect on this time and the people and the places that have helped him through. I also wanted to find out about Andy's hopes and aspirations for the future of the city region as we build back from the pandemic. I'm Lisa Morton, the founder of Roland Dransfield PR, and this is We Built This City. Andy, welcome back to We Built This City. I know, I feel honoured being invited <laughs> back. There's only you and John Thompson from Cold Feet that we've had oh, back on twice, so thank you so company. much. And it's nearly 18 months now since you're on Series 1, which we recorded in lockdown. I think we were both sitting in our beds at home at the time. Yeah. and Well, you in your house and my, exactly <laughs> that, yeah. And we saw that room quite a lot, didn't we, on your calls. Um, you've been very busy. Have you actually slept in 18 months? <sighs> you know, I do feel exhausted at times just because it's been relentless and it hasn't stopped since we did the first uh, podcast one thing after another things that you couldn't have ever envisaged being involved in you know incredible sort of roller coaster really Lisa if I'm honest but we're here we're still standing we're still together city's coming back strong which is what I've observed over the summer the resilience of the place is amazing, isn't it? Mm, absolutely. It's fantastic to see. I mean, we've seen a greater Manchester that we thought we'd never see in our lives with literally empty streets, haven't we? The eerie, awful walking around those echoing streets. I mean, yeah. how did that feel for you as mayor walking around those streets at the well, time? Well, it's kind of a year ago, almost the day when I was in that protracted argument with the government. And I can remember doing those sort of impromptu press events on the streets and remembering just that, you know, how different and desolate it felt. And that kind of contributed to the... I don't know, the slightly unworldly mood of that moment, really. It Mm. just felt odd on every level. And yeah, it was a very tough time for us, that wasn't it? You know, for everybody uh, living through that. And it's just so good to see the life coming back into the place over, over the summer this year, particularly. Yeah, we had it tough. I think there's no doubt about it. But I was just helped all the way through by some of the amazing things people were doing, the messages I was getting, you know, the strength of the place really came through to me. And I, I actually won't forget that, Lisa, you know, I think people conscious of what many of us were going through were kind of sending messages that really, really helped. It was it was great. Yeah, I think even though we weren't actually seeing each other, the city's built on relationships. And I personally feel that I've probably made more relationships in that period of time, even though I wasn't actually physically with people, because there was that real yeah. sense of people reaching out and finding new people to connect with, wasn't there? Definitely. And to be honest, the digital world allowed that a bit, didn't it? Because we couldn't go to meetings in person. So we'd end up doing sort of more zooms and you could get around a lot more couldn't you really <laughs> quite quickly and yeah. uh, you know because we know what transport is like here we'll get maybe get on to that <laughs> yeah uh, so it, yeah there was something about that I mean I remember kind of checking in with community groups much more regularly than I was able would be able to do in normal times because it takes it out of you sometimes doing a, you yeah. know, an evening meeting so we kind of can't lose everything that we've been through in this period and a bit of that digital checking in with each other is is no bad thing is it if mm. that's a permanent uh, legacy. Sure. And are you still, are you permanently in town now? 
or in Greater Manchester, you're not working from home so much now. At the or, odd day, yeah. I think, you know, where, I mean, I didn't enjoy it. I'll just be honest. I think I said it to you on the first podcast. It was a bit of a novelty, wasn't it, to begin with? But, you know, it really dragged, didn't it? And I remember being at home in January, February, just thinking, oh my God, I'd give anything <laughs> to be back in the office going for a pint after work. And, oh, it really, really was tough, I found. And that's just sort of feeling at the end of the day when you'd had like, I mean, sometimes I could have 15 zoom meetings some of them quite intense and you just get to that sort of six seven o'clock time and your head would just be aching wouldn't it with it and I just don't miss that at all I just think that was an awful side of the whole thing it was absolute overload wasn't it at the time I think you know there's certainly if any organizations were concerned about productivity of the teams then that was kind of thrown out with a bathwater wasn't it people worked so hard at the time god absolutely I saw it in my own organization I you know really want to thank all the staff of the GMCA I mean they really worked hard and people were doing jobs that were you know, not their ordinary job, but had no no argument, was just doing whatever was needed. Yeah, people really, really worked hard all the way through that period. And I think it was true across Greater Manchester, wasn't it, in public and private sectors. People probably worked harder than they've ever worked in their lives, actually. Yeah. I think I was talking to somebody today, actually, she was an American woman and I was on a podcast, she was asking me about how Manchester had been and I reflected on flashpoints in our history in 25 years of Roland Dransfield as well. The, the first month, I set the business up the month after we had the IRA bomb and it has reminded me of that particular time, for example, where all of a sudden you, you made new friends, you made new collaborations and connections in order to get the job done. It's felt yeah. like that, hasn't it? Very much like that. I didn't realise that's when... The firm yeah. was created, yeah. And I remember that era in the city. Yeah, I think it does feel similar. And I've certainly you know, had to call on a whole range of people through this period. And always people are there, aren't they? They answer the call. And yeah, it's fantastic working here. You know, I count myself so lucky, Lisa, honestly. You know, I remember my years in the Westminster world. Often in difficult times, you'd call on people and they wouldn't be there. You know, it was quite a common thing. You know, sometimes you kind of would be in a government department and even as a minister and the place wouldn't be properly behind you and you know this is what's so different about doing the job that I currently do you know I just kind of always look over my shoulder and just feel the kind of support behind me which is just honestly you can't put a put a price on that no absolutely not I mean one word I mean I we've never used the word subdued with Manchester ever I don't think <laughs> it's in history but it was subdued for a time it, wasn't it and that's it was, it was a, but it's making up for it yeah because <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I was say. living in the city centre this uh this summer yeah um because we had to be out of our house for a little while it's been being sort of rewired and um yeah, it wasn't quiet in the city centre. No. So, so I think we added to that a bit because we were, the Burnham family were, were out and about in Freight Island and, and God knows where. But um, no, I, I, the city was subdued, you're right, but it's definitely come back with a really good mood about it, I found, being around. You know, it was really positive. It wasn't as sort of leery maybe as, as right. it can be. Yeah. All towns can be, can't they? You know what I mean? It just People just seem to be so glad to be back and and out there and I hope we can keep that that kind of feeling the city is different as well isn't it with all of the um outside eating drinking well that's going to get a bit more difficult as we go into the into the later months of the year but I've really enjoyed being in the city centre a lot over recent months and I think we're just getting better and better all of the time at what the place offers Sure. And I think the outside eating has been, you know, it's been fantastic, hasn't it? And that's going to stay in place, isn't it? So unlike Westminster, who Westminster and London are changing the rules around that, aren't they now? Oh, so they're taking they? all well, the tables make, off the streets. Making and, a mistake, aren't they? Because yeah. I think 
you know, that's really added something. Mm. And it's that point about the mood just feels a bit brighter, maybe, than it was. It just, I think it gives a sense of people relax a little bit more. It's not as tense trying to find a table inside. You know, it's, I don't know. It just, it was just great to be in and around the Northern Quarter all summer. And, and where did you go for your first pint after lockdown? <laughs> God, I have many pints after lockdown. I don't know uh, where, where was the first. I think it might have been Rainbow, actually. I think we might have seen it because your, your nightmare instant. Do you run that yourself? No, my daughter. Does she? Oh, well, good. Yeah. Oh, it's hilarious. I we we see, no, I well, wondered. But the, it's yeah. been fantastic to see you actually, you know, out and about and enjoying yourself on the unofficial side. Yeah. yeah. You no, made she, the most of the, t- of the city for sure. I, I, yeah, it was all chronicled on there, wasn't it? And, um, I some mornings would kind of wake up and would see texts on my phone like, God, how did they know about that? And then I realised that uh, Annie had been posting stuff that you know, probably wasn't fully authorised, let me put it that way. <laughs> well, it's very authentic. Um, so obviously, you know, we're talking about and a lot, a lot's happened in that time. And um, in that time, you stood up for Greater Manchester against the government on the steps of Central Library. I think that picture of you and Richard Lees will forever stay in the annals of history in your parkers. You've won your second mayoral election and you've been crowned King of the North and had a beer named after you. <laughs> So, quite. How, <laughs> yeah. How do you feel as you look back and reflect on that? Some some real turbulence, but also some some moments that must have been fantastic. Yeah, it, it never felt fantastic, if I'm honest. In that, it was just tough. It was what I remember the relentlessness of it and making those judgment calls almost on a daily basis. How am I going to respond to this? What am I going to say now? Uh, in response to the latest government uh, announcement, it was tough, really. It tested every political skill that I've learned in my career. And it was just happening in real time, you know, all of the time. There was none of the ability to plan or to think it through. You just had to go on your instincts, um, on your knowledge of the place and the people, try your best to speak for the best interests of the majority and, you know, the best interests of the place. So it was a more intense uh, period than I've ever had in my political career. And I include the, being in the cabinet uh, as part of that. You know, it's much more demanding on every, on every mm. level. But rightly so, you know, it's a big privilege to do this job. And, you know, I just wanted my, to carry the place through as best I could through what I knew at the start of the pandemic was going to be a difficult time. You know, we knew we were going to be hit harder than other places just for a whole range of reasons. Uh, so, you know, I just knew, you know, I, I kind of I don't know if that came over in the first podcast. I just clicked into a different mode when the pandemic came because I'd been involved in a the pandemic of 2009-10 swine flu. I knew a lot about pandemic policy. And so I was ready, if you like. I was, you know, I knew what, what was coming our way and I knew what, to expect but I just thought well I'm just gonna have to be out there regularly to carry the place through and I think it was a good job I was because we did see the sort of worst of the London-centric culture again didn't we at times last year and it needed to be called out. Mm. And just going back to that day when you did call it out and you said that the government was asking us to gamble our jobs homes and businesses on a tier three strategy that their experts they couldn't be sure it would work you were absolutely livid and so was Greater Manchester we were livid how did you feel in that moment and what was that emotion like? So I think I said that on the you know, the day when they'd finally imposed Tier 3. Mm. And yeah, the way that all was done at the end, I mean, we tried in good faith. I mean, all the leaders would tell you this. We, we did have proper negotiations, discussions with the government. You know, I, didn't, I never was convinced by the idea of Tier 3. The regional tiers, in my view, were a flawed concept because 
it, well, the deputy chief medical officer said this to us. They, they they were saying to the government at that time, only a national lockdown will deal with the situation that we're in. So we had that from Jonathan Van Tam. Uh, and yet we were then supposed to sort of sign up to this sort of damaging lockdown, but wouldn't bring the health benefit, but would definitely cause the economic damage. So you say livid. Well, I kind of was really. It just They weren't listening to the evidence. They weren't uh, listening to us. It was just, you know, um, kind of dropped on us. And yeah, it was just the sort of feeling of how wrong that was, particularly when I, they didn't understand what we'd already been through from July onwards. And that was the thing that came through as well. It was almost like I had to constantly remind them, do you realise you put us under restrictions in July? And it was like, oh, 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 yeah. So, but they didn't. And that, that was, in many ways, it's not a political point. It's more a kind of broader point because it applies to all governments. It kind of brought out the worst of the way the country's run. You know, we're out of sight, out of mind to that world too much. And, and I'm afraid that was the case in that, the height of that moment last year. And so moving on now, obviously, we're recording this and we've got Tory party conference just outside the door in St. Peter's Square. You've kind of shifted your view now in terms of talking about potentially looking to the government to partner. So you are you more conciliatory now? Do you think they can do that? I mean, what are your views on them coming with us on that journey? So I had to think really carefully, Lisa, about how I handled Conservative Party conference in Manchester, because it is a year to the day almost that we were in those arguments. And I just thought, well, how would it help anybody here if I tried to rerun all of the, that stuff from last year? It, it just wouldn't. I am still sore about it in many ways because it did reveal um, a kind of disregard for people here. They expect people here to put up things that they would never expect people in London to put up with. But I made that point last year. I think it landed. And... The question is, well, what now then? So there's just no point, is there, constantly trying to, you know, I, I said when I came here into this role that I wouldn't, you know, do all the point scoring. So I'm trying to live by that and say, well, I need to take the place forward after the pandemic. So it's why we came up with this idea of a levelling up deal for Greater Manchester. Uh, and at its heart, a London-style public transport system with London-level fares. I mean, that's been the kind of pitch that we've that we've made. The reason I've done it is because I think, because of what happened last year, maybe the onus is on them even more now to say there's something that's been offered here. We'll go with that to sort of reset things. So we'll wait and see. I mean, it's gone fairly well. I mean, the Greater Manchester family has really spoken with one voice. It's been brilliant, actually. We're so grateful to all of our partners for kind of getting behind that, that single message of the levelling up deal. And we'll see what comes of it now. But I just felt that... I wouldn't be helping anybody if we, we just started to go back over the old ground of last year. You know, that was then. This is now. We need to move forward. So I'm not averse to being the first one to put the offer on the table of how we move forward. Yeah. And if we can do that successfully and they come along with us, then that's a feather in the cap for them. Ultimately, it's got to be a win, hasn't it? Yeah. And that's what I've said. I think they say they want levelling up. We definitely want levelling up. So the obvious thing is to try and form a partnership, isn't it? To make it happen. Because we can't have levelling up done from 200 miles away mm. in Whitehall where they're just imposing or dropping schemes on us. It won't work anyway if that's the way that they try and do it. It will work if it's driven bottom up from here and we build a zero carbon transport system linked to new zero carbon homes, revitalising our towns. You know, you can start to feel how that will really take us to the next level. And that's the concept that I've put to them. And so what are you actually asking for financially and what do you think that would deliver for people who are listening who don't perhaps understand levelling up? 
So transport is the foundation to it. You know, I believe strongly that if we were able to create that London-style public transport system over bus and tram, so in effect, if people think about it this way, Metrolink and the buses become one system. Yeah. Largely electric, largely running on renewable energy, where people can take journeys that are sort of through-ticketed. So you tap in, tap out. £1.55 a bus journey, you know, a daily cap on what people can spend. It could transform the way people move around, move around the city. And it could open up jobs and opportunities to people that are currently out of reach. Yeah. So it would be massively life-changing for many people in Greater Manchester if we can make this, make this happen. And because I've taken the decision to put buses back under public control, that's the key to it. Because the difference is for people who don't follow all these things in, in detail. For 35 years to now, the bus companies have been able to decide where they go and what they charge. And as long as that system continues, we can't integrate the ticketing system that they run with our trams because they're in control of it. So by bringing the buses under public control, that is the key to then integrating the buses with, the, with everything else. And it just a, I think it's a great vision for the city region, you know, yellow and black, B network, you know, it's, yeah, it's good, absolutely. isn't it? I, I, I can see you smiling. Yeah. You think the same? You yeah, think without works? a doubt. And I, and I do think, you know, we know from the work that we do with some charities in, within GM in the city that some people just can't get into Manchester. I mean, yeah. it's shocking. So because of the cost. I thought you'd be a bit old school. I thought you'd be orange and white all the way. And one of those people <laughs> would beat me, beat me up for not, not going back to the, uh, to the old days. Everything's B. I'm happy with the B. Obviously, your schedule has been extremely busy and we've talked about that. So there must have been moments where you have really thought, you got up in the morning and thought, what fresh hell is this today? What have you dug into there in terms of, of yourself, in terms of your strength and your own resilience in that period? Several German lagers. No, that's probably the wrong answer, isn't <laughs> You've it? have all done white wine and cried, Andy, and blocked out. I've dug into that a little yeah. bit. I shouldn't really. Sorry, actually, but anyway, I'm trying to be, be honest. Um, no, it has been, it was hard at, at times. But actually, a more, a more responsible message from the mayor is that I did a lot of running. I think I said this too on the first podcast, and that has carried on. Yeah. To the point where I did the Great North Run recently in under two hours. I was absolutely amazing. Made up, yeah, made that was up so with that. good. So, yeah, the running's been a big thing, as has the music. So I've been sort of really broadening my music horizons um, over the last 18 months, listening to stuff that I've kind of always said, oh, I should listen to that album, get around to it, never did. So I've really enjoyed that, you know, listening to stuff as I've been out there running. And just the restarting of gigs has just been brilliant. I've yes. actually enjoyed it. I never thought I'd say this, but I have enjoyed it more than the football. I missed live music more during the lockdowns and so getting back to that has been been fantastic and yeah that, all of that has carried me carried me through what have you listened to uh well um so the slow readers club were my thing earlier in the in the uh, yeah remember f- that first uh, <laughs> lockdown you had a big thing there i still still listen to them a lot actually i love them um then um had quite a big uh, new order phase uh, going into stuff that you know i I'd listened to years ago, but really got back into into all of it. In terms of uh, new music, the Lathams have been, they kind of played at my 50th birthday, which was brilliant. So I since, was there at that, yeah. Yeah, to see them yeah. now number one, isn't that yeah. great? Yeah, that's incredible. Everyone that's because of your do that. I know, I know. I propelled these fantastic lads from Wigan all the way to the top of the charts. No, I don't think so. Their, their talent has done that. But no, that's been, you know, that was, and I was 
waiting for their album to come out and that's that's brilliant as expected so um god there's loads more stuff i've been listening to the national were a band I, i'd never got into but i've kind of had a bit of a opening of my eyes to them fleet foxes definitely their album sure was something i listened to a lot um god i could go on i won't and what about the lottery winners they're local to you aren't they? yeah, yeah and their album came out yeah it, exactly last year so yeah them as well the wigan scene really is yeah. something actually because there's another band called Stanleys who um, my my son was at primary school with the lead singer and secondary school in fact and Win Stanley College so we know <laughs> Tom Concannon really well and he's the Stanleys I think won't be in the shadow of the Lathams for long I think they're, um, they're, they're they're coming through as well but there's a real Wigan scene there yeah. it's great to see and in your running you've been running up around the new co-op live arena haven't you were saying so um, I mean that's going to be coming out of the ground soon I mean what's your view on that for uh, the city well, city region again, it's, it's all of this stuff is the next level isn't it we're at a level now which is great but this takes us up a rung or two so the transport but also that venue because it will mean the city can host some of the very very biggest events um, that maybe might not come here at the moment so it's exciting isn't it what co-op live will will add yeah you're right I've been running up and down that uh, Ashton Canal Um, so I've been thinking a lot about how we start to really knit all of you know there's some brilliant facilities in that area now and the arena will take it on another level but I think really bringing all of those bits together and connecting them better is, is yeah. what we need to do in the and lots of local in jobs period. in that area too yeah so that's really important isn't it and apparently they have to part of the commitment with the co-op live naming rights for 15 years is that the co-op the arena has to raise a million pounds for charity every year and tw- i think it's 20 percent of that goes into the local community so it's fantastic pretty good no, co- it's legacy brilliant. there being made yeah i mean I, you know, I think some of it might even find its way into the music uh uh, ecosystem yeah. you know, at the kind of more grassroots level which is absolutely absolutely fantastic that was a worry and you know because obviously getting the um investment of that nature is amazing but i remember you know a worrying moment in that first lockdown was when gorilla and the deaf institute were hanging by a thread and i do think we need to get more serious about protecting this infrastructure that we've got in the city so we're bringing forward a great amount of music commission we've um you know got applications in at the moment and i'm really really keen coming out of this that we we you know we could get a bit more serious about protecting our our music infrastructure and i think the arena the, the co-op live arena can be a can be a part of that i think so definitely i mean it's a city of independence isn't it as well so in terms of independent music and it so is. that is it we is. need to celebrate that i mean talking about that kevin lee said he can get me some tickets to see um the blossoms and rick astley doing the smiths he said he's the only person that can get it so i'm going to be asking him after this podcast what do we feel about that you, <laughs> well there's mixed views that. shay what do you think i, I, I don't know <laughs> <laughs> well rick i've got a, i've got a bit of a connection with rick astley yeah because I was at school in Newtonley Willows when he was in a band called FBI, and he was from the other local school called Selwyn Jones. And they used, they used to come and most of the FBI were from my school, Saint Elwood's, and Rick used to come down every lunchtime and practice. Uh, and it was a yeah, it was always a bit of an issue really because no one Sellys were the other school, and Rick was like you know he always got a bit of grief when <laughs> he came stick. in. But we kind of watched um, them develop, and then. The famous thing is that Pete Waterman went to watch FBI at Earlstown Labour Club, and he said, oh, "I don't like the band, but I'll take the lead singer." And we, right. so we're all we were all quite <laughs> vested in his success in the early days. His mum and dad owned a garden centre in 
in Newton. I knew uh, that. Yeah, I don't know why I know about that. But yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. As we got a bit older, he was like the antithesis to the music we liked, Rick, because we were kind of, you know, big Smiths fans at the time, and um, you know, Rick was doing something else. So now to think of him singing the Smiths. Are you going? Like, I kind of not reconcile myself to it. And I, I saw Johnny Marr's comments on yeah. it, and I thought, ooh. Because <laughs> they all play, well, Blossoms and Johnny Marr were on the same building, yes. weren't they? At the yeah. By the way, that Johnny Marr set was just... Do, we, you know, know my you, story about that, don't you? No, I, I, well, you retweeted it, or one of you... Oh, I did. Yeah. No, I do know So literally had to, was going to Genesis with clients, pulled up. Genesis? Well, listen, what? it was you, a pro- someone, it was a client, and I promised ages ago, and oh, I didn't know there was a clash. Stop it. I remember, I can't. Actually, now the name of this podcast makes sense. <laughs> we, we built this city. What's that band who had that song? Stop we built shit. this city. <laughs> Is that your type of no, music? No, it's Genesis not at all. And, well, they Starship Yeah, it was Starship, yeah. Probably like Jump by Van Halen and all that kind of stuff. Don't it you? was, uh, yeah, I it's was... It's all the, revealed itself on I this know. podcast. I nearly cried because we got to Old Trafford and the doors opened and Johnny Marr was in the middle of There Is A Light and my heart went out because I was a massive Smiths fan. And everyone, when that line, it was the line, everyone on the tram started singing at oh, the same time. Did Reece, you sing? Yeah, we all yeah. did. We were all yeah. laughing. It was a, it was one of those like mank moments, and I just put it there and then on Twitter, and it's had about a thousand likes. God knows, I retweets. Johnny Mars reposted I it, saw, and his yeah. wife put it on Instagram. Yeah. So um, yeah, so it was a mank moment. And it I, was. I, do you know yeah. that was an incredible thing? Yeah. Like that. I mean, I not seen Johnny live on his you know on his own. My son kept telling me to go and watch him, and, I, and so it was the first time I'd actually seen him, and it was amazing. But in some ways. All the songs were reclaimed that night, weren't they? Because I think we've all been ambivalent, haven't we, about yeah. them, if we're honest. But with Johnny up there singing them, everyone could kind of reclaim them. So I know, re- do you know what I mean, though, when, yeah, I, when I, I say that? And yeah. the, I'll never forget that, that Cricket Ground was absolutely packed out that night. And because Blossoms were on first, everyone had got in early. And when Johnny came on, it was just unbelievable. And it was going dark and everything. Oh, honest, that, that, that will live a long time in the memory. And you were at Genesis. I was going to say, I feel worse than I felt before now. Thanks to that, Andy. You've been seen as a man of the people. And um, we've obviously seen lots of other people who stood for the city as well. Has there anybody uh, particularly that stood out for you in that period of time who's used their platform to really support people in our community? Oh, so many people actually. I you know, almost plucking odd ones out kind of feels a bit a bit unfair, but I think everybody stepped forward. Mm, yeah, you know, I because you helped us with the one GM coming together after the the trauma, as it was, of that whole tier three thing. You know, it was just great, wasn't it? All the voices that came forward. Bishop David, that was really important. I thought, you know, the fact that he was prepared to step forward in that difficult moment mattered, mattered a lot. Um, but there were just so many voices there, weren't there? Marcus inspired us, didn't it? You know, at that particular moment when he began his campaign, I think it was kind of running into the tier three thing, if I remember rightly. I think it was it was at, at or around the same time, wasn't it? And, you know, I, I just think, you know, that was inspirational, wasn't it? To see what he he did uh, through that through that period, but on a you know just on a, a sort of more local level, there were just so many people who were speaking out that were doing amazing things. It really was sort of the 
the spirit of the being in action, wasn't it? Everyone was playing their part for the greater good, weren't they? And yeah. It was something to see, really. And I think protecting our own. I mean, when that horrific um, situation with the, with the mural in Withington, you know, the way that the community came together to defend uh, Marcus and, and stand, stand on for him was just a really wonderful thing to see. It really was. I, I think, you know, that whole episode during the summer is one of the things that's given me more hope, actually, about the future of this country than, than many other things in recent times in that you had a group of working class lads pretty much all over the country north and south black and white you know lads from all, all kinds of different backgrounds who came under pressure from politicians to stop taking the knee for what they believed in and you know it, I, I don't think if I think back to England teams of the past that they would have dug in but they did and actually, it was just a hugely inspirational thing that they did, I, I think, that they carried on to it, the country got behind them, and they, they faced down that sort of, you know, that culture war attack that came. And, you know, it, it was just phenomenal, wasn't it? And I think, obviously, the lone um, uh, racist voices that came out when the penalties were missed were just then completely dominated again by the vast majority of people who've been... So take taken with what they've done, and I, I'm in my early fifties now. I've never warmed to an England team in the way that I did to this England team in the summer. And even though they didn't quite get there, they were within a whisker, weren't they, of winning it? You know what what a thing they did, and it gives me hope about the their generation. I think their generation is something to be hopeful about, mm. don't you think? I absolutely agree with 20 you. Twenty somethings, yeah. and I just think they've kind of got such a great take on things. They don't see difference in people they see the common commonalities in people um yeah i i'm really hopeful about the future of this future of this city region i think it's going to be in really safe hands in that generation that's coming through and obviously on that point then we're talking about building a, a, a city region back that's not really for our generation is it it's for those people and so to to feel that they're you know we're in safe hands there but what do you see as a city region we need to do, obviously, you know, as part of the post-COVID um, rebuild? What do we need to be considering to create better opportunities for young people who possibly may not, you know, have them just yet? So I'm going to come back to transport because I just mm. think that's the thing that's holding us back. Yeah. You know, the, um, the city is world class in many respects now. And that, if we're paying credit where it's due, is down to Sir Richard, Sir Howard, Peter Smith, who, who we lost... Um, in the summer um but also you know we've we've lost that gen some of that generation haven't we now you know in terms of um the others who went before them kieran quinn from tameside and others you know so what 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 we've got now in the city is obviously a, a place that is kind of risen if you like to a point where it's way above the rest of uh england outside of london we were uh, called the third best city in the world recently by Time Out. And they said that they gave that award based on the spirit of the people, which is just fantastic. The thing that isn't world-class, though, is transport. And I, I have this feeling that if we make it world-class, this place then will all of a sudden click in a way that, you know, you know we can't quite imagine. When people... See, the thing, the way I look at it, Lisa, is... So when I was coming back here after graduation in the early 90s, I think I touched on this last time, there weren't any jobs here and we had to leave to get on in life. We had to go south. In the last 20, 30 years, we've brought big organisations here to base themselves in the city. BBC, GCHQ, you can name a whole list of them now. 
but they've kind of almost brought other people in to work here. For me, the next phase of our city region's development is when the young people growing up here look at the city, look at Media City, look at all of the amazing places that we've got now and are confident that they will be working there, you know, that they'll, yeah. that talent will come through and, and, and basically make the city its own. And I, I think that's the next phase that we've got to get to. And the transport connectivity is critical in that to me. It's about, and also it's about lifting the towns now on the back of the strength of the city. So we're starting to do that with Stockport. I, I think now we need to start getting round the, the, the surrounding towns and showing how the strong city starts to lift lift the places that um, you know have had a bad 20, 30 years, basically. Yeah, definitely. And can we just touch on um, homelessness? I know that's a massive passion of yours and of the, the work that you've done with the bed every night. And obviously, uh, it, rough sleeping improved during lockdown. And, and I understand that it's actually we've got, a better, we've got fewer rough sleepers on the streets now than we had before COVID. Um, but it's still an issue, obviously. You know, the fragility of, of yeah. the pandemic has caused all kinds of, um, of of issues there. And you said it's a human right to have safe, secure housing. Where do we go f- now with that, would you say? I'm worried, if I'm honest, about the homelessness situation. So we did do a lot of good work. Uh, we got down to 40 people sleeping rough at one point uh, during the, uh, the, the the peak of the first lockdown. And you know, that is a hell of a ch- an achievement, given where we were. If we're honest, the numbers have crept back up again. And we're speaking today on the eve of the removal of the £20 uplift to universal credit. And I think that will add pressure. So there are over 600 people in a bed every night, every single night. You know, it's hard to sustain, but it shows you the need is there. So it is precarious. Um, How do we deal with it long term? We've just got to get into much greater prevention. So we have a homelessness prevention strategy now. And I think that's what we've got to really focus on rather than just providing the emergency accommodation. So the thinking is there, I and mean, we know what we've got to do. It's just it's the challenge of funding it, if I'm honest. And it's why I'm always grateful for the generosity of people who give to the Greater Manchester Mayor's Charity. Mm. Well, that's great. Well, I'm just wrapping up now, so I know you've got lots of other places to be at. It's great to hear that you feel so kind of hopeful about where we're going now and that, that word hope no, that's do. come through I, with this interview. I, I do. I feel, yeah. you know, I thought, I wasn't sure when I spoke to you last time whether or not we'd have a, a take a permanent hit from the pandemic and I don't feel that is going to happen now. It was a you know, real risk, wasn't there, that people wouldn't be working in the office in the same way or they wouldn't be coming back to the city in the same way. I, I don't feel that's going to happen. And in fact, I think some people have taken the kind of pause of the pandemic to say, do we need to be so London-based? Mm-hmm. Couldn't we you know, locate a bit more yeah. out of London? And I think we might be beneficiaries of, of that. Yeah. Well, let's hope so and let's forward to that. And thank you so much for taking no the time problem. again, Andy. And um, good luck in the return game at Goodison Park because I think you well, need we, it. <laughs> we, we played you off the park and I was getting some grief from Sir Alex in the director's box. At, uh, well, what's it like as being the, the uh, mayor well, <laughs> and it was surrounded by Manchester United I did, fans? I, I did a stifled celebration when Townsend scored <laughs> at the weekend. And, uh, and it was really, I was at, going in for half time and... Dennis Law's daughter said, I saw you. Don't think you didn't get noticed. I was like, Die does not miss a trick. Yeah, so, uh, no, no, she didn't. Um, and I'm always conscious that, you know, when, when these things happen, I saw quite a few eyes turn around and have a look. Check, uh, check on there you. There were a few votes evaporating, I think, in, the, in Old Trafford on Saturday afternoon. But United will come good. And I'm absolutely delighted to see Ronaldo back. It's great. That's been great for the city. It certainly is. And yeah. I know 
all managers have their you know their, their tough periods, but I think Ollie will come through. I'm absolutely certain, and the team you know the it, it will gel at one point. It will click at, at some point this season, and uh, yeah, get get into the. Uh, Get into the other lot from Anfield. That's what we want you to do. You know, we're, we're, we're more than happy for you to start beating them on a regular basis. So. Brilliant. Thanks so much, Andy. No problem. Andy Burnham has continued to build this city by being crowned King of the North, by speaking truth to power on the steps of Central Library, and by being told off by Dennis Law's daughter for celebrating in the director's box at Old Trafford. On the next episode of We Built This City, you'll hear from Everton Head of Medicine, Danny Donachie. That episode will be available on October the 21st. If you want to find out more about how Roland Dransfield can help you to drive your values and create relationships that build your business success, then head over to rdpr.co.uk. Or you can find us on Instagram at Roland Dransfield or Twitter at RDPR Tweets. Or feel free to give us a call at the office on the same number we've had for 25 years on 0161 236 1122. In the meantime, don't forget to rate, review and follow We Built This City. Thank you. Thank you.